Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futura Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Von Tone Quinlevin, CEO of Futura Health. My guest today, Dr. Angela Jackson, is the embodiment of a future-focused leader in workforce development. She founded the labor market intelligence firm Future Forge Strategies. She's been deeply involved in the Future of Work Grand Challenge, which is seeking to connect workforce training systems to innovators. She previously led Future of Work Strategy for the venture philanthropy firm New Profit, and she's teaching the next generation of students about entrepreneurship in the education marketplace as a lecturer at Harvard University. With all of that in mind, she's the perfect guide to what 2023 may bring as employers, workers, and educators continue to face unprecedented challenges of the fallout of the pandemic. How will employers manage the rising power of workers? How will technology be leveraged in training? How can higher education meet the needs of a rapidly changing labor market? I'm looking forward to getting her thoughts on that and much more today. Thanks so much for joining us, Angela. Thank you for having me, Vaughn. Well, we're delighted to have you. Um, before we start looking forward, let's take stock of this past year in workforce development and the job market. After all the volatility of the economy, one thing hasn't changed. Employers are still having a hard time filling positions. What is your take on where things stand now? Well, I think during the pandemic, Vaughn, we realized, and when I say we, I count myself in with all other workers, how precious time was. And I think that was part of something I had been calling the Corona bonus, that we all had a time out and time to reflect on the work that we did and the meaning that it had for us. You know, for many people, they didn't have the luxury to stay in place at home, but for those who did, they start seeing a different quality of life. I heard from fathers who were working and who had stay-at-home moms that they were able to share more of the caregiving responsibilities. And plus, they enjoyed seeing their children grow. And so where we're at now, when we think about workforce development, people are looking for purpose. And some say that that's pie in the sky, but really, people want to understand, is the work that they are doing meaningful to the world? Is it meaningful to them personally? And it's more than just what a dollar amount could be. And so that's when we see these phenomenons around the great resignation or the lie down movement, or they're saying now with working mothers are just breaking up with their jobs. And again, I think that's going to really call for employers and for all of us in workforce development to think about how we reimagine what I like to call an equitable future of work that is inclusive that people can find themselves and find meaning. Oh, I love that. Reimagining an equitable future of work. So what would be examples of practices you think that employers um, need to consider in order to create this equitable future that you've outlined? Yeah, and I'll, and I'll actually give you a, a couple of examples too. So really thinking about centering the employee's experience. I wrote an article and really coined this phrase the social determinants of work, like what things need to be in place to ensure that someone is able to show up fully in a context of work. So these are things like health benefits. There are things like childcare. There are things like making sure that they have their financial health met. 
And employers are starting to look at these as they've never looked before as these benefits and really thinking, what does an individual employee need to be able to get to work, you know, solid transportation, cost-efficient transportation. And I'll give you an example. I'm an advisor to an organization called Guild Education. They work with leading Fortune 500 companies to create um, opportunities for frontline workers to upskill and earn a two-year or four-year degree. And one thing that Rachel Carlson, who is a working mother, did when she founded Guild is she actually created a childcare center on-premise. For the employees. And so you say that's great. And, and parents love that because during their breaks, they can go down and see their child. It's convenient for them. You know, instead of trying to drop your child off in another location, you can like beeline straight to work. But also what they did when I talk about an equitable future of work, they are providing these services on a sliding scale. So those who make more pay more and those who make less pay less. And so that's when we're talking about equitable. It's about giving the benefit, but then also making sure that people can take advantage of it. And I'll give you a counterexample. I was working with the CEO of a fast casual restaurant and the company had just implemented a 401k plan for their frontline workers. He came to me because he was perplexed. He thought this was a great thing that the company was doing, investing in the financial future of the employees. But he was perplexed because none of his frontline employees had taken advantage of the plan. And he wondered why. And I said, one, have you asked them? He hadn't. And two, I said, let's think about what the disposable income is for a frontline worker. You created this benefit, and this is a benefit for people who have cash to save and to put away from their paychecks. But if you're living paycheck to paycheck, maybe that's not your first priority. And after talking to him, I actually recommended um, what I'm seeing is a company called COMPT. And what they do is they allow for personalized benefits. So imagine that same money that that employer, the, the CEO of the fast casual restaurant, imagine if he was giving that money to that direct employee and saying, you can spend this in a way that matters most for you. So that might mean that they might use it for elder care. That might mean that they're using it for transportation. But what we don't realize until someone has their basic needs met for them to be in the mindset to work, it's hard for them to engage. Oh, I really love the the idea of the comp where you have personalized benefit. And to your point about, you know, why do people not use the 401k? It's the same reason why folks didn't use the tuition reimbursement because they didn't have the cash flow in order to pay the, the, the tuition up front. So yeah. I, I love how you're pointing out not only the best practices, but sort of the unconscious bias that was built into the benefit. Yeah. And that's why, you know, when I talk to folks, I say how important it is for us to be in proximity with our workers at all levels and really deeply understand their lived realities. Because what I've found with many clients that I'm working with now with Future Forward Strategies, really focused on human capital, is that when you listen, right, when you ask people to tell you, they will tell you. And I tell them to listen but listen with an action orientation. So not just listening to what they say and then do something different, but listen to what they really want and say what you can do and what you can't do. And that's why, you know, one of the trends that we'll see is a reimagining of benefits 
2023. That people will think the old way of 401k, flexible spending account, which, you know, if you look at high numbers, people don't use because it's also disposable income dependent. You'll see more employers really thinking, how can I meet an employee where they are so they can feel valued? And that will help with the retention that we hope to see. Right now, the workers are in a pretty strong position and continue to demand these better benefits. And I love the fact that you've you've highlighted um, reimagining benefits as a possible strategy for employers, because aren't they also in a bind because of inflation? There's going to be a need to increase COLA, et cetera. But then how do you pass on all those costs, right? How are those different forces balancing out, you think, or will balance out? Well, there's a couple of things. I think on the consumer and customer side, we're seeing more and more consumers vote their values, right, at the cash register, what products that they buy. So I think that companies, although there will be inflation and there'll be additional cost, um, there are customers out there who are willing to pay more when they feel it's an ethical company. So that's number one. Number two, the thing that we think about is for these companies, Many of them are making profits. And so we talk about shareholder value. You know, it's really now time to really talk about stakeholder value. Maybe our shareholders have to take a little less return so that we can add value to our stakeholders, our employees who are also shareholders in a very different way. And so I think that's the trend. There are companies that made record profits during COVID. A lot of those weren't passed on to the workers. And now that we've talked about inflation, of course, we have to increase wages. And I tell people minimum wages haven't worked for a long time. I like to talk about family sustaining wages. And that means that some of the companies are going to have to cut their profits to be able to do that. And I think those are the ones that will win in the future of work with retention. You know, you have an expertise in the area of environmental, social, and corporate governance investing or social impact investors. So when you consider the portfolio of investments, um, are these concepts of family sustaining wages, uh, stakeholder value, are are these concepts that you weave into the way that you invest? Absolutely. And that's all of ESG. And ESG is very interesting right now because many people measure it different ways. I think what we'll see in the future with ESG are companies and also some of the evaluators coalescing around frameworks for what ESG is. ESG gets a bad rap because sometimes people say it's just greenwashing. It's not real. But there are forces that are pushing the need for people to coalesce around what are the principles that really make ESG ESG. And one of those forces is new SEC ruling that is going to ask all public company to report on their human capital as it relates to that. So as people become and companies do more reporting on who they're hiring, what the retention rates, what the diversity is, um, that's going to be public information. And so when I talked about that first phenomenon of people voting and and paying with their values, they're going to have more information to actually do that. And you're seeing a new crop of investors who are also investing that way. And I'll give you one quick example of those. I think about Generations. um, It's the Climate Fund that is chaired by former Vice President Al Gore. I was in a meeting with 100 other investors, and they were okay with taking some concessionary returns because of the impact and the work that this investment firm was doing in the climate industry. 
And the fact that this is something that we have to deal with now, our house is on fire. It's not about me getting a 10X or 20X return. I'll take 3X if I can help the planet. And it's an environment where my kids can work and breathe good air. And so I think that's what we're seeing in this trend with investors. They want to know what companies that you're investing in. They want to know their track records around the climate and also their human capital. Like, how are they treating people? How are they treating their workers? How are they being a good citizen in their communities? So I think all of these together is making this movement, I think, will help workers. Because I think a lot of people are fighting for workers now now. And with COVID again, that bonus is we all had a timeout and we saw the importance of essential workers. Now it's like, how do we really honor them? That is so interesting. Um, You know, in terms of human capital, Skills Future in Singapore tells me that the government has companies report on what percentage of investment do they, they make in training and retraining of employees as a way to monitor how much R&D is, you know, is being put into human capital. Do you think that could be a measure within our country? Because that, that's a very difficult. Absolutely. I mean, it's the first thing cut, right? It is. This, it's difficult, but not. We've got companies that track everything. It's about intention and deciding what they want to track and what's worth tracking. And what will be worth tracking for them? There's carrots and sticks. So, you know, the carrot is these investors who really care about it, who are asking these questions which are going to be important. The stick will be the SEC who are asking more and more companies to really report on that, right? And that there can be issues on the end if they're not able to do that. So I think there's going to be a both and. And again, all of these companies can report on it. Some of them have the reports and have the information. Um, Some of that information doesn't look good. And so they haven't released it publicly. And so I think that there will come a time where we'll see more and more companies trying to differentiate themselves. You know, you've got B corporations, et cetera, coming out. who are being very transparent and that will call for others to match them. Now, how should we think about trends in outsourcing? Uh, You've written about the rise of talent as a service. Let let me put that in quote as a model. Uh, What can you tell us about that? So when we think about talent as a service, It's really meeting the great resignation where we've seen and that intersection of gig work. During the pandemic, we saw more and more workers really enjoy having control over their time, even if they made the same amount or a little less than having a full 40-hour week because they wanted the flexibility. And so more and more companies will be looking to build people on short-term You could say gigs, job stints. And these are, you know, it started with Uber and Lyft with driving, but it really, it's gone to services that we hadn't thought about before. So we know that there's our nursing shortage, for example. Um, There are platforms now that hospitals can, you know, dial up on the day and they can book nurses on the spot. And these nurses have control of their schedules, also control of their pay, what they want to be paid for their services. And again, some nurses find that flexible because they have other interests. They're, you know, going back to get maybe a more advanced degree. They want time to pursue or work with parents or their children. And so talent as a service benefits companies who are having and experiencing these shortages, but it also benefits talent for really understanding what's their value on the labor market. And is there a relationship between talent and a service, uh, you know, control over your time and the trend about bringing women back to work because we lost so many during the pandemic. What are the measures that need to be put in place to maintain momentum of bringing women back into the workforce? Yeah, so when we think about women coming back to the workforce, there 
is so much unpaid labor. By research standards, it says every, you know, three to five hours that a woman will do an unpaid labor, a man is doing one hour. And if you were to take the unpaid labor done by women, and if it was a sector that we measured financially, it'd be the number one sector that we're giving because there's so much that's unseen. We saw that when women were at home, they were able to, you know, put a load in the laundry, maybe put dinner on so someone could like come home at night. And so I think the biggest thing that we need to do is just recognize that this unpaid labor is real until we're compensating it, really know that it exists. And not only for women, but also for men. And so when we're thinking about women specifically, we want to know, again, what needs to be true for them to be in the mindset of work? So how can we be more flexible with their schedule so they can drop their child off in the morning and not rush or feel scattered in getting into work with an 11 a.m. start time work or a 10? Making sure that they have flexibility to leave when they need to go to a school play so they're not making constantly these like gut-wrenching trade-offs. The second is, you know, and I pointed to Guild Education, we know childcare is an issue. We know it's hard to find good quality childcare. What can employers do to make that burden easier? And again, these are the most formative years of a child. To have them in a solid place where there's pedagogy, that's giving a woman peace of mind. That's helping her with a solution to a problem she'd have, whether she's working at that employer or another employer. So if you had your choice, which one would you choose? The one that's accounting for some of those caregiving benefits and also adult caregiving, when we think about it with our parents who are aging, you know, just really acknowledging the toll and the disproportionate burden that that has on women and specifically women of color. Well, you know, to correct that market, unfortunately, there's no uh, SEC that can be a stick Yeah. Uh, in the same way. I wonder what would be the big catalyst that would really place value on a lot of this unpaid labor. Well, I think one is the recognition that women are leaving. There aren't people stepping up in their place. We have the next generation that are coming in who are like, we don't want to work like the boomers. We don't even want to put our heads down like the Gen X. We want and deserve more. So you will continue to see women, brilliant women who are creative, who are building outsized lives. They'll have portfolio careers where they'll do some consulting and they'll be able to come in and out. Now, will they raise through the corporate ranks? That's going to be the loss. And that's what we have to grapple with. And I think that that when you talk about the stick, the stick is the board of directors, the stick is the shareholders holding companies like feet to the fire, the leadership teams on why we can't get more women and leaders. Why are they leaving? And again, if you're tracking this, if people are tracking, it gives a narrative and a story. And now we just need to make sure that we take that and use that to give people the incentive to, to do what they already know is the right thing. Very good. Well, Angela, you've written about ARVR, augmented reality, virtual reality, having the potential to make training less expensive and more accessible. This is such a fun space. Is that potential being realized yet? You know, when we think about the emerging technologies of AI around training, it's very nascent, one. But two, the reason why I'm hopeful for the promise, um, there was a research report that came out that was by the Annie Casey Foundation and also the Joyce Foundation out of Chicago. And they did a survey of workplaces and they found that most employers spend 80% of their professional development dollars on their highest wage earners. 
And that's traditionally the way it has been. And that's not a surprise. You know, I tell people in my prior life, I worked for Nokia. I was in the C-suite. They paid for me to go back and, and do an MBA at INSEAD. I could have afforded to do that on my own, but they did that as a technique to retain me. Um, unfortunately, the problem is that those opportunities have not been distributed along the lines from frontline to middle management equally. And so what happens with people who are entry level or on the front line, most of their training, 90% of it is really around safety. And that's unfortunate because there's an opportunity if the costs are right to really train people for jobs that can have pathways. I tell any employer an unfilled vacancy is an upskilling opportunity for someone that's already on their team. And so with virtual training, by being in a virtual environment when it's done right, um, you can do the training of many with the same cost. People are able to train at a place and time that works for them. So for example, I could be at home and do the training and it's you know 10 o'clock at night. I could do it during the work day. You see, you have the flexibility and that's again thinking about how do we meet people where they are? I'm a firm believer that People want to upskill. They want these opportunities. But it's, again, how do we do it at a time and place that works for them? Not what's easiest for the company, per se. It's centering worker and centering worker voice. I'm with you. I love that space. And I'm looking forward to tracking the developments of Stryker immersion and, and all these new technologies that enable us to do education differently. Well, speaking about education, there used to be a hard line between higher education and the employers and the workforce. But clearly, the two need to work together. The two segments need to work together, much more so on workforce development. How is this continuing trend going to play out for colleges and universities? What's your prediction on the future of higher education? When I think about the future of higher education, I'm really thinking about the players who are entrenched where there will always be someone who wants to go to an Ivy League school. So they'll have to innovate, and they are. And I can give some examples of what Harvard is doing in terms of distance learning that they've just never done previously in the past, for example, and how they were able to get a different type of student, an older student, because they were offering on hybrid classes or online classes. So you see places like Harvard that will still innovate, but may not have to, and they'll still get students. And then you have middle-of-the-road colleges where the choice, there's so many choices out there that they will be forced to innovate because there are models that are coming up that are combining this work and earn model. One example um, is Reach University. And I don't know if you've heard of them, but what they're able to do is to take job embedded learning and translate that to college credit. So someone is able to advance on their degree by doing their actual job and their supervisor is talking about what are the different topics and competencies that they're learning that would apply to a degree. And so those models, again, when you're centering the worker, when you're centering, you know, this new traditional student, I say the majority student who's older, who has familial responsibilities, who can't afford to take a year off, right, to go back to graduate school because they have rent due next month or a mortgage to pay. And so these universities who are really thinking like that, they're going to blossom and bloom. And when I go back to Reach University, they're now working with 20 other universities to share their model because they feel like in terms of their impact, they wanted a proof of concept, but their scale is scaling through working with other universities to actually take this model and scale it out. 
that will be an exciting um, organization to watch. It is one to watch. And I think others who are thinking about the new majority learners. So we've got institutions who are really thinking about what does it mean to be a working mother on a college campus, to be a working single mom on a, a college campus. I think a lot of the investments around imaginable um, futures that is doing that work. Like, again, how do we attune to the realities of the people in front of us versus what we perceive that there are? You know, college is not just that 18-year-old who's going back to college again. It's a more mature person. And people who are even 18, they need to make better decisions. So I've always been a fan of programs like Northeastern's co-op model, or you think about the University of Rhode Island that has a comprehensive program in engineering where there's, again, job embedded learning where students are earning and learning and getting real credentials, right, when they go out to the job market. And I think that's what's going to be the differentiator. You can't do college for college sake anymore. It's just too expensive. Right. I mean, in Canada, they have the the co-op program where it's part of the structure. You're expected to go do the work interspersed with your education. And of course, students come out much more prepared for work, right? Absolutely. And, you know, Northeastern uh, University here in Massachusetts, they've been doing this since the 60s. My partner's an alum of Northeastern. He did this back in, you know, the 90s. And we were having coffee. We ran across a gentleman who was at Northeastern back in 1967. And he went through the co-op program. And he talked about, for him, that gave him a lift up. You know, he was able to advance because he was the trader who had the, the background in it and tangible knowledge. And so I just think more and more we need to care more than just what happened. We graduated someone. Like, what are the outcomes? What are the labor market outcomes? Now, let me shift note a little bit here. You have been very involved in a multi-year project called the Future of Work Grand Challenge. Tell us about this competition. The Future of Work Grand Challenge was funded and seeded by a new profit, a venture philanthropy firm based here in Boston. And what we really want to do with the Future of Work Grand Challenge is really understand how people were upskilling. Again, meeting people where they are and thinking about how do people transition to a new sector or field without having to go back and have an advanced degree, without quitting their current job because we knew their lived realities. And so we had been planning this Future Work Grand Challenge all of 2019, and we were thinking about launching it in December of 2021, and then COVID hit in March. And we felt we had aligned a group of partners to really meet this moment. And so with philanthropic partners like Strata Education Network, Annie Casey Foundation, Walmart.org, Lumina, and many others, what we coalesced around was people needed to be upskilled. People who had been maybe working in hospitality for the last five years, and we know what happened with hospitality and restaurants, those jobs stopped immediately. And people were really thinking about what's next for me. And so we wanted it to be a short burst program that would be no more than 16 to 30 weeks to train someone. And we benchmarked that with Europe that typically takes six months to a year. We said, what if we could cut that time in half? And then what if we could train people for jobs? that had a family-sustaining wage, according to the MIT calculator. We thought, can we do this? 
Is this even possible? So we put this call out. We had over 1,500 innovators come to us with challenges um, and with innovations to upskill around healthcare, manufacturing, for jobs, again, that have a living wage. We narrowed that down to 15 that we deployed in five different markets, working with local workforce boards and career centers, because we also wanted them to be able to train people who had the most barriers to employment. So people who had been justice involved, people who were single mothers, people who had transportation issues. We didn't want them creaming because it's easy to place people who already have a four-year degree. All of these folks did not have a four-year degree. That was the other requirement. And what we saw were some innovative trainings that came out that even though I work in the future of work every single day that I hadn't heard of. And one of my favorites is a company called Charger Health. Charger Help trains people to be electric car charging vehicle technicians. I said, who, who even knew that existed as a job? And funny enough, it actually didn't exist. Two um, African-American women were living in Compton and they saw all of the charging stations uh, popping up in their community. And they were trying to figure out what could be a business around that? And they figured out that most of these stations regularly are like on the blitz and, and need servicing. And so they created a workforce company and service company to service these stations. They hired former Lyft drivers, Uber drivers, and single moms who had been home to basically be the technicians because they came up with the solution was like, most of the servicing actually happens in the cloud. And when someone's going out to service, they use their phone and they just type in what they see, troubleshooting, and then the service happens in the cloud. And I thought that that was just so brilliant because they were able to train them in 16 weeks. And during the 16 weeks, they're making upwards of $50 an hour. But on the open marketplace, their hardest challenge with retention is their competitors pay upwards of $120. But their competitors would not consider the people that Charter Help does. They had an embedded workforce mission and they really wanted to bring people who didn't have a four-year degree into the sector as a pathway into tech, into a higher wage. And they've been able to accomplish that, which is why I'm a huge fan of their model and the work and the impact that they're having. And so that's just one of the innovations of the Grand Challenge. We had 14 other phenomenal solutions that we deployed in these five communities. The first goal was, can you place and train 500 people, and that happened. And now they're in this, what we're calling rapid reskilling, where the goal is to train and place 5,000 people in two sectors into living wage jobs. And so the challenge will wrap up in December of this year. And so we'll have the net results of how many people were placed, how many people were trained, and then how many people were retained for at least 60 days. It's not enough just to place them. Like, are they there? Are they thriving? And so I am writing a, a new book um, that's titled right now, Good Jobs Promise, that will talk about the results of this challenge, what we learned along the way about the barriers that prevent people from upskilling, but also what are the bright lights, like the charter helps that are out there, the innovative models that can really make a difference in terms of workforce development. And since uh, Futura Health is in the space of growing the allied health workforce, were there any proposals that, that touch in the healthcare space? There were. So um, there are two of them that I thought were just really meaningful. Um, the first was called Hire Me, and they work with Boston Medical, and they created a training for surgical sterilization technicians. Again, similar to Charger Help, I didn't know that that was a job that didn't require a four-year degree. 
And what they were able to do was to create an online training that was asynchronous. So workers could take them anytime that they wanted to train for this over 16 weeks. Once they created the training, the Massachusetts Workforce Board sent it out to everyone that was on the unemployment rolls. They had 1,600 people respond and say they were interested. Typically, the board says when they send out a training that they may get 50 to 60 people, 1,600 responded they were interested, and then 800 went through the training. And what was brilliant about what the platform did is they were able to customize the training to the hospital and to the job. Two, they knew that there were jobs available. And so that's a good incentive for someone to go through the training. And the third thing they did was because it was asynchronous, you know, people could do it at midnight. They could do it 10 a.m. They could do it on their break. And they had a 24 hour like kind of chat or call if someone had issues with the training or got stuck that they could get literally in they said three to five hours that someone could get back to them immediately and help them troubleshoot. What they also did using AI and data, and I say AI for good, is they were tracking all of the 800 participants and they could tell which units they got stuck on. And once they got data that multiple people were getting stuck on, they could real time change that content so that more students could actually obtain it and pass it. And so I thought that was just a brilliant use of technology. Um, again, doing this learning at distance asynchronously and actually adjusting the curriculum, more personalizing it for the students to make sure that they could achieve and learn. And all of those people who've gone through it, they've gotten jobs, all of them. And so when you think about healthcare, how can you train people who want to get into this pathway, who don't know how, the stakes are low, and, and the cost per usage was the company did it for the board as a pilot for free. The board went on because it was so successful, hired them for other placements and other trainings. Another company did something uh, very similar, but they did it in Web3 in a virtual environment. So as they were training for these health positions, they would put on goggles. And what was interesting about that, we did that work in Dallas with the Dallas Workforce Board. It was great when we heard from the workers who had actually went through the training, that they could actually see and feel how it would be being in that hospital, being in that lab, and how for them, they'd never had that experience. So how do you know you're going to like something before going through this like experience where you're immersed in it? And so we got even higher satisfaction from that. We had some people said, you know, I thought I'd like this, but I didn't. And that was good knowledge before placing in them, right? And there's others who said they felt like it was just so informative and so real for them. And so I always think about when I talk about the metaverse or the promise of Web3 and thinking about this for high schools, thinking about this for colleges. And when we talk about an equitable future of work, a lot of people can't travel for internships. They can't do it from five to nine. How do we give people job embedded experiences in a very inclusive way? Well, these are very inspiring uh, case studies and vignettes. Thank you for sharing. Well, let me uh, wrap up our time with you by giving you the opportunity to uh, share what makes you excited about 2023. What gives me hope in 2023 is really this focus on centering worker voice and also the increasing employee power and the fact that employees are exercising that power. You know, we've always had it. 
And we had it more when there were unions, but the problem is we didn't exercise it. And I think that's what we're seeing with the great resignation. People are not leaving jobs. They're leaving people. They're leaving bad managers. They're leaving people who won't really recognize their humanity and live realities of the work that they do. And we talked about this unpaid labor. Um, what I'm excited about is that companies are paying attention to that now. And that's going to bode well for workers. That's going to bode well for retention. And really, I think in general, that's going to bode well for the economy. So I'm really excited to see how employers will respond to meet workers where they are in their needs. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Jackson. We learned so much from you today, and we were very inspired by this concept of reimagining a more equitable future of work here. So thank you for spending time with us and imparting your knowledge to our listeners. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Vontone Quinlivan with Futura Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Thank you.